Very, 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 very cool. So thanks for participating, North Point. Hey, um, we're going to jump right into it this morning. Uh, I I get kind of a cool privilege. Pastor Rick kind of started us in a story last week, and then I get to finish that story uh, this week. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, so we're really jumping right into it. So if you have a a Bible with you, you're going to want to find Acts chapter 4. If you're using the, uh, uh, whatever we pew back is that what we call these pews that sounds weird pew back bible the bible that's in front of you if you're using that i think that's page 912 i think that because i wrote it on my hand so um if you want to use that that's great if you have a a phone ipad ipod your own copy of the scriptures we want you to be looking at that this morning acts chapter four um just by kind of way of review because uh the story uh was just uh sort of ended about uh, two-thirds of the way into it last week And we're just going to pick up on that. Uh, Maybe you weren't here last week, so this is really not review, but just kind of a summation of the event. Or maybe you were here last week physically, but uh, mentally you were elsewhere, I understand. Or if it's just been a long week and you're like, wait, we had church last week? I don't know what's going on. That's okay. So just by way of review, Acts chapter 4, the event last week. Peter and John were walking into the temple, and they passed this guy who had been laying there, uh, a beggar, uh, lame, I think since birth, forever. I mean, he's been laying there for, for days and days and years and years and years and years and years and years. Thank you. Because that's his thing. He was known at this point. Like, like he wasn't an unknown person to Peter and John or anybody who had been going into the temple. Probably everybody knew him by face. If they didn't know his name, they're like, oh, that's that lame beggar that always sits by that door. Well, on this day, Peter and John walk into the temple, and as they pass him, they have an interaction with him where God takes the opportunity to heal this guy. Maybe he was paraplegic. I, I don't know, but God takes the opportunity to heal this guy. This guy doesn't just stand up and be like, oh, I have legs. This guy gets up and like starts leaping, <laughs> right, and jumping and running around. God heals him. Peter and John are standing there. He's jumping and leaping around and screaming and doing that cool Irish kick thing that I'm not even going to attempt this morning. And it begins to draw a crowd. Like a bunch of people start showing up because like when someone's running around like a maniac, you want to know like, hey, what's free, <laughs> right? So people are showing up. There's this giant crowd that forms. And, and Peter is standing there. They're watching this guy who was a, a, a lame beggar now running and jumping and dancing. And they, he notices this crowd forms. And so Peter and John begin to tell the story of Jesus. Simply tell the story that they know. They seem to think this is a good opportunity to talk about Jesus. I think they're probably right. right? So they tell the story. What do they say? Well, they, they say this is who Jesus was. You know, that, 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 that also he was the Messiah, the guy that you've been waiting for for a long time. And they also say that, well, you guys killed him. But, but, it, but that's all right because you still have an opportunity to come to a relationship with this Jesus. Even though these things are true, that you killed, you still have this opportunity to know him because he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. You have an opportunity to get to know him in a personal way. That's the story he tells. So meanwhile, while they're telling their story and the guy is dancing around, the religious leaders, the religious politicians, the religious police come out. They're part of this crowd. And they're not, they're not okay that Peter and John are talking about uh, this Jesus. It's not that they're mad that they're talking. Because like that would have been very normal back then. You get a crowd, you start having a conversation with them. That would have been acceptable, especially in the temple. But they're upset that they're talking about Jesus. And so they arrest him. 
They take him to jail. They interrogate him. They're not sure what to do with him because the guy is still running around the temple. He's been healed. So they just put him in jail for the night, and, and they'll figure it out later. So this is Peter and John's experience. They have this interaction. God moves. They have a conversation. They get put in handcuffs. They get hauled off to jail. They're now being interrogated by, I don't know what it looked like, but in my head, it's like five very angry men in robes. I don't know if it looks like that, but they're being interrogated by these guys who are not happy. That's their experience. They get thrown into jail. This is a time in the world when, you know, the justice system was maybe (laughs) even worse. You don't know if you're coming out. You don't know how long before you see anybody. You don't have necessarily a lot of rights. And I can't imagine jail conditions back in the first century were any good. They get thrown in jail. That's their experience. They sleep there that night. I don't think they got a phone call home. I don't know if people knew when they were going to get out, if they were able to communicate with their loved ones that, no, we're okay. We just have to be here for a while. It'll get figured out. We don't really know. We just know that they get picked up and they're put in jail. They're interrogated. So then the next day comes, and, and, and they pull them out of jail, and, and, and this, this interesting thing happens because they don't know what to do with them. They don't know what to do with Peter and John because it's kind of hard to argue with the healed guy who's running around going, look at my legs, right? And, and so they decide to let them go, but they let them go, and they say, hey, whatever you do, just stop talking about this silly Jesus stuff, and it all will be good. So Peter and John leave. That's the event that we kind of looked at last week. Are you with me so far? Good enough review. We're on the same page. So let's pick up on sort of where that event then picks up today. And remember, they got picked up. All that happened simply because they did something good. <laughs> they did something good. And, and God moved. Simply because God moved and they did something nice, they got picked up. By the way, before we jump in today, Luke, the author of Acts, does leave one little detail, sort of as a side note, that meanwhile, while they're in prison and while this guy's dancing around and the religious people are frustrated, Luke throws in the, oh, and and about 5,000 people came to a relationship with Jesus that day. Almost like it's a side note. It's a side note. It actually says 5,000 men, so it could have been a much larger group. I don't know if this is true, but I ha- in my head, I imagine that not everybody who was part of that crowd jumped into a relationship with Jesus that day. There were even more. Are you sort of going where I'm going? How many people were standing around listening and watching and trying to figure this out? Luke thinks it's important for us to know that about 5,000 of them jumped into a relationship with Jesus. Okay, so that's the event. Here's where we pick up in Luke, uh, Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. Are you with me? Fantastic. It says this. It says, When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, that group of people, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and made the earth and made the sea and made everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to us, your servants, to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. 
keep your finger there. I just want to make a couple of comments about this stuff because it's interesting. They, 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 they get out of prison. They, they come to the, the place where the believers, the friends were gathered. And, and I don't know. I don't know if that's the 12. I don't know if that's the 120. I don't know if it's the new 5,000. I don't know who's gathered in this place, but they're gathered there. Uh, maybe they've been gathered for a while. They're just kind of living this community together. Maybe they gathered because John and Peter had been picked up and they kind of had heard through the grapevine the rumors. So they gathered to pray. That makes some, some sense. That's what we do when stuff goes down, right? When it gets scary. So maybe they were gathered to pray for Peter and John, not knowing if they were going to see them again, not knowing what kinds of conditions they were in. So for whatever reason, they're together. I get the picture that Peter and John show up, knock on the door. They open the door and they're like, Peter! <laughs> and they grab him and they go, tell us everything. Tell us what happened. Peter and John do. They, they tell him what happened. They tell him what the religious politicians said. They tell him, uh, you, you know, all, all the events, what, what they had for dinner that night in jail. I don't know. They tell him everything. And immediately the group then goes to, and I don't, I'm really scared to say the next word. Because, frankly, we've, we say this word a lot. We know it's something we should be doing. And, and if I'm just really honest, sometimes when I'm sitting there and somebody up here says this next word, I tune out. Because I go, oh, yeah, prayer. I know prayer. That's important. I should pray. And I do know that. And so I think I know that. And so then I kind of tune out. That's my fear when I say we're going to talk a little about the thing they do next this morning. I don't want to say the P word right now. The thing they do next this morning. We're going to talk about that. I don't want you to tune out just yet. But they do. They pray. Now, what do they pray for? How do they pray? What did that sound like? My guess is that it did not look like this video that I want to show you. It didn't look like this at all. Check this out. Hey guys, it's time. I'm going to get started. Before we get going, I thought we would open up in prayer. Kind of go around the room. Steve, would you mind starting? Uh, I don't want to jinx it. Okay. Yes, Steve. Uh, my roommate from college has a job interview okay. tomorrow. Okay. And this guy's granduncle is sick of his cat's wheezing. It we can needs, pray for that. Needs some sort of surgery. Or, uh, anyway, his granduncle is, is trying to sell his Camaro to, to pay for it. Yeah, we can pray for that. Whoever feels led can start it off. Why don't we, why don't we go ahead? my shoe. Dear Lord, you go ahead. 
Oh, oh okay. okay. No, no, you go. go. Okay, okay, I'll go. Dear Lord, we pray for the Camaro. No, you, you go. go. Bazooka. How's this happening? Bazooka, Bazooka Joe likes bubblegum. Bazooka Joe likes bubblegum is chili. We, we pray, pray for the cat, cat. amen. Alright everybody, we're making some progress. So uh, truth be told, I stole that from another church. But but uh, but my hunch is that when the when the gathered believers got together and prayed, it, it didn't it didn't look like that. Matter of fact, Luke Luke must have been there. That's my hunch. Luke was there because because he gives us such a detailed kind of recording of how they prayed. I want you to I want you to see this this morning. This was really important and, and good for me this week personally. And so hopefully, I just want you to see it. Starting in verse. Um, uh, 23 again, that's fine. It says, uh, when they were released, they went to friends and reported to the chief priests and elders what they had said to them. Uh, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and made the earth and made the sea and made everything in them, who through the mouth of David, our father, uh, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage, people's plot in vain, kings set themselves, rulers are gathered together against the Lord, anointed one. For truly in this city even, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Just pause there for a second. They, they start out praying, but they start out, the very first thing that they do is they begin to, to express their fear and concern and need or whatever it is that they're thinking to God. They start by affirming his sovereignty. They start the prayer. Matter of fact, this, if, if you look at it, if you count the verses, if you count the words, this, this is about two-thirds of their prayer is spent affirming God's sovereignty. Sovereignty, the fact that God is in control, that he has a plan, that he's doing stuff and moving. God is in control. God is sovereign. They start by affirming God's sovereignty. Some of it was ancient history. They talk about how God created everything. And I put the word made before every single thing that they said because I think that's the intention of the verse. It's the intention of what they were saying. That God created everything. There's this beautiful verse in Psalms that talks about God holding the universe in the palm of his hand or the span of his hand. That's amazing when we begin to think about that. The things that we struggle with and are frustrated by and hurt me and all the things that I tend to wrap my prayer life around uh, barely, barely dot the palm of God's hand. These folks start praying by affirming God's sovereignty. Some of it ancient history, some of it more contemporary history. They talk about David. They would have known David well in their, in their re- relatively recent history. Then they talk about events that just happened months ago. The fact that there were the leaders, Pontius Pilate and Herod, that gathered together with Gentiles and Jews, it's pretty much everybody, to, to crucify Jesus. And yet even as they talk about that, they affirm God's sovereignty in it. Because they don't say, hey, these people conspired against Jesus. Oh my gosh, what are we going to do? They, they make this statement, you see it in there, verse 20, uh, 28, to do whatever your hand and your plan so they recognize in even the most tragic event that they had experienced in their recent history, God is sovereign. Like these people planned against Jesus, but it was really God's plan that was being worked out. They spent two-thirds of their prayer 
affirming the sovereignty of God, talking about the history, the way that God has worked in the past. I think this is as much a reminder for them as it is kind of a confession to God. That God, we know that you're in control. We know that you're sovereign. We know that you have a plan. We may not understand it right now. I may not like it, quite frankly, but I can admit readily that you have a plan, that you're sovereign, that you're in control. Sometimes, I'll just talk about me because I'm pretty messed up. When, uh, when I pray, I feel like I just have lists of stuff and lists of needs. And those are, those are important. Like, I don't want to discount the, how important that is to pray for the needs of me or people. But man, how much of my prayer life is just taken up by affirming the sovereignty of God? It was a few years ago. Um, my, my, oldest, uh, my oldest kid had a, a spinal fusion surgery. She has scoliosis. It's all good. She's wonderful. I'll just tell you the end from instead of the beginning. But, but when we were walking up to that and leading up to that, and it's fresh on my mind right now because a friend of mine is walking through that with his 15-year-old son right now. But, uh, but we were walking up to that. On my iPad, I started a list. And I just titled it, Things God's Done For Me, because I'm super smart like that. <laughs> Things God's Done For Me. And I just, because I was terrified. I just, right? We're good, right? That's honest. I just terrified. So I just started writing things down, things that God's done for me. And I'm not the smartest guy on the planet, but that was so encouraging for me to, to remind myself in what I can remember, which is pretty small <laughs> these days, the ways that God has been sovereign in my life. So it's fascinating because as the, the, the New Testament believers, this brand new church that's working on being bold, the first thing, right out this terrifying situation where threats came and they don't know what's going to happen next, they begin to pray. And the first thing they do is affirm God's sovereignty. Okay, then they move the attention off of that about two-thirds of the way in and they begin to pray about the thing that's on their heart, the need that they have. And this is what they say. Check out verse uh, 29. I want you to see this. They say this, they say, and now, Lord, so there's a transition there. Look upon their threats, the religious leaders and politicians, look on their threats and grant to your servants, it's us, to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders that are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They pray for two things for themselves. I think this is important. They pray for two things for themselves. They pray for something that that maybe we call our part or or their part, but I think we can say our part. They pray for our part. They say, God, help us in, in these next days and weeks and months and years to speak your word with boldness. I always thought that meant they're praying, hey, God, help me be uh, confrontive. Like, help me be willing to just stand up and stand up tall and be confrontive when I need to be. Or at least the concept of bravery. Help me to be brave in the midst of all these threats that I would still be brave. And I don't want to discount that. There's certainly an element of bravery in there. But, but this word that they use for boldness has a, has a little bit of a different meaning. And it was really encouraging to me. It's the word in Greek, uh, pataseia, which doesn't mean anything other than it can be translated as open or clear, not secretive, or not figurative, but open, clarity, uh, on the front side, not having to figure out how to sneak it in. So in essence, they're praying, God, our part, my part, God, help, help me to have open, clear opportunities to tell the story of Jesus. That's what they're praying for. And certainly there's a piece of bravery in that, but I think really more the connotation is help us 
like clearly see these opportunities to just tell your story. Like help me when I see them to take advantage of these opportunities to talk about you. Like let there just be ready opportunities to tell your story. Now, this makes sense in the event that just happened. There was a, a paralyzed guy who got healed, and then they look up. I, I, I don't know how this actually looked, but this in my imagination is how it goes. You know, as they're, they're kind of looking at this guy who's up and jumping around, and they're like, what? This is great. God's doing cool stuff. <laughs> Holy cow. There's a lot of people out there. I think they turned and all of a sudden saw this crowd that was gathered, and, and they think, hey, this is probably a good opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. <laughs> I, I think they were right. Right? But what, what an obvious, open, clear opportunity to just simply tell the story of Jesus. So they pray for their part. They pray for this boldness that has this idea of open, clear opportunity. But then they pray for, for God's part, too. Did you see that? It's like in verse 30. It, it starts with this, this, this word in the ESV, while. So this transition word of continuation. So while we're doing kind of our thing, we're telling the story of Jesus, God, your part, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders. So God, help us, give us the ability to do our part, to just tell the story of Jesus. And God, do your part. And maybe if I were to shrink that, I would say your part being convincing or convicting. See, in the event that happened, it, it's pretty obvious. This guy was healed. God did an amazing thing. They look up and decide it's a good opportunity to tell the story of Jesus, and they do. Luke reminds us a ton of people got into a relationship with Jesus that day because God did the convincing. It's kind of hard to argue, right, with a healed person. But see, it wasn't Peter and John that were going around trying to convince everybody, no, really, he's healed. No, really, seriously, he was paralyzed, but now he's healed. No, check him out. No, he was paralyzed, but now he's healed. No, can you, do you notice over here he was healed? Do you see that he was healed? Like, it just told the story of Jesus. And God did his part, the convincing part. I think I get this backwards way too often. Somehow, I pray that I can do the convincing, which is terrible because I'm terrible at it. I somehow think that that's my role, that somehow I'm supposed to convince the person that I'm talking to about the truth, about the reality, about... So what does that do at the end of the day? It makes me not tell the story of Jesus because I don't want to step into that because I can't convince them. Here's the cool part. I know! It's kind of not my job. My job, God, help me to be bold that I would see clear opportunities to tell your story. That was their prayer. That ought to be my prayer. And then, God, you do the convincing in that. You make it happen. You put those pieces together. God's part. I don't know if this relates. This is in my head this week, and so I'll just share it with you. But, but, but often I pray, I think, for the wrong thing. Um, and the word healing is in there. And so I'm thinking about this. I had an opportunity uh, to spend some time with some, some North Point friends in the hospital this week. And I've had an opportunity to spend some time with some of you guys in the hospital. If I ever get to do that, if I ever come visit you in the hospital, um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for you, whether you like it or not. Uh, I'm going to pray for you. And, uh, and, I, and I'm going to pray for healing because like, we, we want to see God move. But, but what you're going to get to, and this is just how I'm wired, is, is I, I'm going to pray that you have opportunity while you're laying <laughs> in all the beautiful glory that you are laying in that hospital bed, that, that you have opportunity to, to share Jesus with everybody that comes to that room. And that your friends and family that are kind of staying with you and hanging out with you, that they have opportunity to share Jesus with everybody that comes to that room. You ever thought about how many people come how many medical staff, medical personnel, hospital staff you have interaction with in an, in an average hospital stay? 
I uh, talked to, texted a doctor friend of mine this week just to see the number that he thought. The average three-day, and average is hard, I know that, because like, nothing's average and it depends and all that. But average three-day hospital stay, you as the patient and your immediate family will have interaction with 20 unique individuals. That's a ton of people. I don't even know if I know 20 people. You have interaction with 20 unique individuals that come through your, your hospital room. And I was talking with that, that friend. I told him I wouldn't tell you who he was. But uh, I was talking with that friend this morning. Now you all know. And, um, and, and he was saying, you know, I wasn't thinking about this, Chris, when we were talking. But, but actually, it's probably more than that. Because and he told me a couple of stories how that happened to him. And, and that, that nurse who had this conversation with the person came out and was kind of talking about it with the other doctors who then there was a group behind them listening to this conversation, and he was trying to do the math on the exponential of that. And it was, just, it was kind of crazy to think that in a hospital visit, maybe when you're thinking the least about uh, having conversations or, or talking about Jesus, what a great opportunity to tell the story of Jesus. But so if I get to pray for you, I'm going to pray that God is working in your body, but also that God is working in your heart and your soul. And you have an opportunity to tell the story of Jesus to everybody that comes through that room. What a great Great opportunity that is. So they pray. Let me get back to this. Sorry, that was a story. They pray, and uh, they pray for their part, boldness, clear opportunity to talk the story of Jesus, and God's part that he would do the convincing. And here's the crazy thing. God answers. Ha! Oh, you guys weren't surprised. I'm not meaning to then. Uh, so God answers. Verse 30, 31. Check this out. They pray, and it says, And when they had prayed... The place where they were gathered together was shaken. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So, like, God answered. They prayed, hey, give me open opportunity, and you do the convincing. And God did. And as we continue on in the book of Acts, you're going to see this over and over again, that these these men and these women who were uh, just very ordinary, normal people in a really tiny, tiny sliver of the of the world in kind of a know-nothing country that didn't really matter much back in the day and is still awfully, awfully tiny, changed the world because they prayed for boldness for them. God, help us tell the story of Jesus. And that, God, you just keep doing the convincing. And God answered that prayer, and they went out and did it. Matter of fact, it says the place that they were was shaken. That's got to be a crazy thing. Could you imagine if that happened at North Point every time we prayed, like the building shakes? How many of us would be like, I'm picking a new church. This is way too much for me, man. It's interesting because in the Old Testament, every time a place after prayer, or a place is shaken of, of where they were staying or where they were worshiping, it was always uh, what they call uh, a theological word, a theophany. It's when God literally shows up physically. So in the Old Testament, every time the place was shaken, it was God showing up physically. It was like, like the planet goes, whoa, right? And that happens here. God shows up. It talks about the Holy Spirit filling them and whatnot, but literally they're praying and God shows up and they go on and they change the planet. The last thing they knew to be true was that they were told to not talk about this silly Jesus stuff anymore. They pray for boldness for them, open clarity, and they pray that God does his convincing part and God answers and they go on to change the planet. Pretty, pretty amazing. If the story stopped there, We'd be like, hey, cool story, bro. <laughs> like, that's neat, right? And it would be a cool story. But it doesn't. And Luke doesn't stop there. Luke continues on. He actually tells us the results of their prayer, which I just think is cool. Check this out in verse 32. Very, very, very cool. It says this, verse 32. 
It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There wasn't a needy person among them, for as many as were were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as they had need. We'll just stop there for today because it goes on to talk about an event that's going to blow your mind next week, but we'll leave that for Rick. It's super crazy cool. But we hear three specific results of the way that they prayed. What happened to that little group, large group, of believers when they prayed for for our part in boldness and God's part in convincing? Here's the first thing that happened, this concept of unity. Unity happened. The idea that says that they're of one heart and soul. This idea of unity has been a bit played out in church because we talk about it a lot and so we've kind of watered it down to be like the least common offensive denominator thing so sometimes we think unity and we think uh oh, well we're just kind of mostly in agreement and that's not unity and then we think well i'm affiliated with a church and I'm, I'm in unity with that church no that's not the biblical concept of unity the idea that they're grabbing there when they say one heart and one soul is this idea that we are we are together we are, we are connected and committed to each other on this passionate purpose. That makes sense? Like we're on mission. We're connected together. We're committed to each other on this passionate pursuit of mission. That's the concept of unity that they're grabbing a hold of. This idea of passionate commitment to a common mission. You know, North Point, we're, we're on mission, folks. Like we're doing, God's doing stuff. We want to be part of that. We, we want to be on mission. Are we perfect at it? <laughs> Never. All right. But we want to be on mission. If North Point's your church and you come and you say, but really all I want is just to come and sit on a Sunday morning somewhere because I know church is important. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here. Like, thank God for you. But you're going you're gonna to miss it. You're going you're to miss it. Like just showing up isn't what we're about. If we're talking about unity, we're talking about this idea of being committed to a common mission. And moving forward in that. This, this idea of unity is so vital. It's so vital. Like um, in, in any recovery program, Narcotics Anonymous, Alcoholics Anonymous, any of the anonymouses, this idea of unity makes sense. It's, it's vital to them because they're, they're, they're committed to each other on this common mission. Make sense? Like we have a program that meets here Thursday nights called Celebrate Recovery. And they get this idea of being committed to each other on this common mission. Because in the midst of struggle and, and trials and pain, this concept of unity is vital. I've been two decades working with teenagers and parents of teens. And one of the things that I've seen over and over again is that as teenagers, they need to be connected to other families who are on common mission together. For them to recognize Hey, we're not the only crazy family that believes this stuff. Make sense? Like for teens, this is vital that they see other families who are, who are connected and, and committed on common mission. Sometimes, every now and then, they're, they're, some families get this idea that, that somehow if we just sort of hole up and become our own unit, then we'll be good. I'm just saying this concept of unity, being connected to other people who are committed on common mission, that's vital to raising teens. It's vital to recover. It's vital to our lives. It was vital to these guys when they prayed. This new little church thing that's developing, vital that there was a sense of unity there because they were going to change the world. 
They needed to know that other people had their back. Okay, that's number one. Unity was a result. The second result of this prayer was this concept of responsibility for others. Okay, responsibility for others. The, the phrases that we see there, it says no one claimed their, their belongings were their own. Or it says that at, at the end, Luke comes back and says there was no needy people among them. They, they, they had this shift in focus off of their own struggle and problems and onto I've got to take care of the people around me, the sense of responsibility for others. Here's, here's what I want to do. I have a list here of all the needy people at North Point, and I just want to read it really quickly, okay? That'd be awkward, right? Let's not do that. But in that moment, and I don't know if I paused long enough, but in that moment right now, or if, if when we ask for a benevolent offering or we begin to talk about some needs that need met at North Point, we probably have one of three reactions. That, that first reaction, and maybe even right now you thought, Man, somebody should do something about this. Somebody should do something about that need. That's, that's so sad. Somebody should help. <laughs> you know what I'm going to say next, right? Somebody's you or me. Somebody's us. So maybe your first reaction is like, somebody should, oh, man. Well, maybe that somebody's me. May, the, the second reaction, if that's not your reaction, the second reaction might, might have been, well, I can't do anything to help. I just, there's nothing I can do. You didn't, you didn't hear the need yet. How do you know? But sometimes we go quick to that. We go, right, so there's nothing. I don't have any money. I don't have any time. Oh, Okay. But it didn't even pause. Maybe that's not your reaction. The third reaction that I think sometimes we have when we hear these needs, and I think, frankly, it's the right one, is this immediate question we ask of, is there anything that I can do or have to help? That's your thought. What do I have that could help? And maybe as you think through that, you realize, I don't have anything that can help. I don't have the money that's needed. I don't have the time. I don't have the skill. And that's okay. But what happened in your brain is you had this shift off of, Right here, onto how do I care for others? Even if you realize at the end of the thinking you have nothing that can help, but at least the thought was there about responsibility for others. It's interesting because as this, this, these guys and gals pray, they pray for God to, to give me opportunity. My part is to just tell your story clearly, and your part, God, is to convince people that are hearing that of the truth of it. And because of that simple prayer, and they began to live that out because God answered, we have these three results. Unity, huge part, responsibility for others, and this lands us to the third one. The third one is this, this idea of a powerful testimony. Powerful testimony. Testimony is one of those church words. It simply means story. Just a powerful story. Like their lives matched the things they were saying. And that was incredibly powerful. The stuff that they were doing matched the stuff that they were saying. And that's where the power was. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I'm not, I don't mean to pick on any churches. But I grew up in a flavor of church, a kind of church when I was a kid. Um, I grew up in a flavor of church. I think we'd call it sour. I don't, I don't know. But, um, but, and I'm, I kind of tease, but, but they, um, you, walk, you walk in and there was uh, uh, no music on. You walk in, it was very, it was very we're very serious. We're very serious about church. You, were not, you didn't talk to people and you sat down and you, you engaged with that. And then the service happened. And some stuff happened, and then we got uh, dismissed, and we all went outside, and we could talk again. It was just crazy. And, and I'm, not, I don't, I'm not picking on that approach because there's different ways to get at church. But for me, as a 12-year-old kid, I'm seeing that, and I'm hearing the guy up front talk about the joy of a relationship with Jesus. I, I'm hearing the guy up front talk, talk about a joy 
in a relationship with Jesus and how phenomenal this has been in my life over the years. And I didn't get it as a 12-year-old. Like, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, your face doesn't match what you're saying. And if that's, uh, and I'm going to go out and t- tell people about, are you kind of with me on this? This idea that our, our face matches our words. But, but for them, this powerful testimony came because their actions match their words. So they're praying for this opportunity to tell the story of Jesus clearly. God is giving them that. God is convincing people. And because of that, we see the sense of unity, responsibility for others. And those things led to this concept of a powerful testimony that revolutionized the planet. The world is different because of what happened in 30 AD (laughs) with this little group of people that were just ridiculously committed to this Jesus. Isn't that cool? It's like, cool. I just get excited about this stuff. So what does that mean for us? What is that? So what? Here we are today. They had this experience. They prayed. This stuff happened. They, they had a powerful testimony, responsible. You Great. Well, who cares? What does that mean for me? I don't know. If I'm just completely honest, I, I don't know how this applies to every one of us today. I, I know that as I'm thinking through this this week and even this morning, I'm going, how does my life match up to this? Like, how does it stack up? Like this idea of unity. Am I unified with my church? Like, am I really all in with, with North Point? Or am I like against? <laughs> am I antagonistic? Do I just show up and do like, I'm just to take a pew, you know? I, I'm thinking like, am I, am I all in? Am I engaged? Am I, am I, am I part of this? It's so cool. It's so cool to see 200 people yesterday show up and be part of uh, North Point. And one of the things I tell my friends, I think I said this a few weeks ago, I tell my friends who go, do you like North Point? I love North Point. They're like, you're involved. It's so cool. Am I unified with my church? Or am I at odds with people? You know, do I, have, do I take responsibility for others when I hear there's a need that pops up? Is that my first question? Is there anything that I have that could help? Maybe I go, nope. But is that the first thing that pops up? I, I kind of balance my life. Like, who am I against this stuff? Is it similar? And if not... If I'm going, no, man, I, I just, like, I'm against stuff, and no, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm thinking, no way, I'm not helping. Maybe I'm praying for the wrong stuff. Maybe I'm praying to convince people, or maybe I'm praying for just me, or maybe, maybe I'm missing how they prayed. Because it seems like when they prayed, pretty amazing stuff happened. Does that make sense? I, I, don't, I don't know how to, how to apply this for you all. I, I trust that God's doing something. I trust that God's applying it right now in your brain. Matter of fact, probably 15 minutes ago, you tuned out from what I was saying because God captured your attention on something. And that's so, so cool. 20 minutes, I've used the phrase over and over again, tell them the story of Jesus, tell the story of Jesus. Testimony is the story of Jesus. You tell your story of Jesus. They told their story of Jesus. We pray for boldness to tell the story of Jesus. What's the story of Jesus? It's interesting if you're into, and I don't know if you're into spoken word poetry or not. I'm, I kind of like it. If you've never heard of spoken word poetry, you're welcome, unless you hate it, in which case, I'm sorry. Um, but I want to show you a guy who, through spoken word poetry, he's going to tell his story of Jesus, how he sees this Jesus story unfolding, and how he would articulate it. Watch this video. A Roman cross. Yeah, Jesus died on that. See, I don't care what you believe, just read history. It's a historical fact. So the question we have to ask is, what will you do with this man of misery? 
six hours on a piece of wood it somehow completely changed history but see we've pimped Jesus out we've made a sacrifice foolery like oh I'll just go to church on Easter and make the cross nice jewelry but see the cross wasn't a symbol of faith it was a symbol of death I mean imagine if someone had an electric chair hanging around their neck so the question we have to ask is what was different about the man that day that could take something that kills and turn it into something that saves see he was unique because he was innocent God actually became a man now that's different and on the cross he said I'm not dying because of me I'm dying because of you not just for the sins you have done but for the ones you will do and on the cross God treated Jesus like he was us poured out his wrath on the Son so that he might show that he's just see and he took our filth and he took our sin and the beauties when you trust in Jesus you're included in him but first walk with me what it must have been like that night when the Son of God looked like he lost the fight no heartbeat no breathing no sign of life Jesus tasted death and it didn't feel right have you ever let that sink in that Jesus died no really Jesus actually died three days in the tomb lifeless laid his remains like the king had given up his crown like he'd given up his reigns but all of a sudden comes Sunday something started to change from the grave you heard a thump and blood started pumping in his veins heart beating blood pulsing instantly Satan felt his power break because the Son of God was dead now the Son of God is awake and every breath that he took was another punch to Satan's face showing we are not under our sin but we are under grace so rejoice with me because when he went to the grave you did too and when he rose from the grave your life became new he says my job is finished let your new life begin you can actually have freedom stop wallowing in your sin see the chains have been broken the stones been rolled away God doesn't love a future you he actually loves you today so you're clean you're spotless the curse has been squashed that's all baptism is is just showing you've been washed so rejoice with me because we are not awaiting the verdict he's already said not guilty and the resurrection proves he assured it because our whole life we feasted on sin and we couldn't pay the tab Jesus walks over to our bill and says I'll take care of that so stop trying to pay your own debt in fact God doesn't even expect it because the cross shows payment given resurrection shows payment accepted and instantly we we're perfectly spotless when we were spiritual whores because when he walked out of the grave he left our sin on the floor and he turned around and looked at where his body lay and says her sin see that's where you're gonna stay so church walk in freedom because you are free the resurrection is just a stamp saying it's a guarantee a royal decree proclaiming we're children of the king so even when your mouth can't let your life always sing